When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And today I have a co-host with me. Uh, Hi, Um, I'm Aisha Mu'alla. I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of Sociology, Shiv Nadar University in India. My ethnographic research explores the social life of frankincense, its materiality and human entanglements in Oman. And I'm very happy to co-host this podcast with Ahmad. Welcome, Asha. Happy to have you here. And today we are here to talk to Dr. Uh, Mariel Reis. Uh, Dr. Malia Reis is an associate professor at Dufar University in Salala, Oman. Uh, Dr. Reis lived and taught at the university level in Oman for over 16 years and in the United Arab Emirates for two years. Her research areas are uh, Dufari cultures, uh, comparative literature, and intercultural communication. She has published three books, Houseways in Southern Oman, which we will be talking about today, uh, published uh, this year in 2023 by Routledge. Also, Foodways in Southern Oman, published by Routledge in 2021, and Community and Autonomy in Southern Oman, published uh, by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. Today's uh, book, House Ways in Southern Oman, explores how houses are created, maintained, and conceptualized in Southern Oman. Based on long-term research on the far region, which lays between Yemen and Oman, it draws uh, on anthropology, sociology, urban studies, and architectural history. The chapters consider physical and functional aspects, including regulations governing land use, factors in setting houses, architectural styles, and norms for interior and exterior decorating. The volume also reflects on cultural expectations regarding how and when rooms are used and issues such as safety, privacy, social connectedness, and ease of movement. Houses and residential areas are situated within the fabric of towns. Comparison is made with housing in other countries in the Arabian Peninsula, and consideration is given to notions of, quote-unquote, Islamic city and the Islamic house, which we will be talking about further in this episode. The book is valuable reading for scholars interested in the Middle East, architectural uh, cultures and styles and histories, the built environment, and Arabia, also in the Indian Ocean. Welcome, uh, Professor Reese, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Hi, thank you. Welcome. Uh, we would like first to learn about the authors. So can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself, uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any works or mentors that influence your work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I was born in upstate New York, but I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, which is a planned community, which is pretty rare in America in that the land was bought and then completely designed before anything was built. And I think that had a great impact on my being interested in how people live. Also, my father was a city planner and my sister is very interested in interior design. So I grew up with a lot of discussions about how houses are built and designed. 
I went to undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then I got a master's in education from the University of Maryland College Park. And then I ended up at the University of North Dakota, where I got a PhD in English literature with a minor in education. But my PhD was about travel writing, which has always interested me, basically because I want to know how people cope or fail to cope with moving through new spaces or traveling through new countries. And from University of North Dakota, I ended up moving to the Emirates, to Sharjah, to the American University of Sharjah, which was just being built at that time. So I was there for the first two years. And while I was at Sharjah teaching literature, I went on vacation with friends to Muscat and fell in love with Oman. So after two years at the American University of Sharjah, I moved back to the States and I worked as staff at MIT for five years. And then they were building a university in Salala, Oman, in the Dofar region, the Southern Dofar region. And I applied and was thrilled that I was accepted. And I have been here for 18 years. So when I came, I was a literature professor, and still most of my teaching is in literature. So that's drama, stories, poetry, all different eras, all different types. But within about a year of me moving here, I wanted to learn more about the people and the cultures. And of course, I had always been interested in travel writing. So first I was reading travelers who came through this region. Then I found some anthropology books about Oman and started going through that. And gradually my research focus changed from teaching, although I still do some work with how to find the best texts to teach from. Um, but most of my research work now is more ethnology, anthropology, talking to people and being interested in cultures. And so that work sort of accumulated with my first book about community and autonomy. And then one aspect that came out of that book that I was interested in was how people here use food as a way of not, not creating friendships, but strengthening, strengthening friendships, strengthening relationships between family, and how much different kinds of food moves between different people for different reasons. So that was a very small part of my first book, but was interesting to me. And so I expanded that into the second book about food and foodways. Um, and then from the foodways book, I one of the things that struck me as I was working on it was that I had never been in people's kitchens, which is very odd because as an American, when I go home and visit my friends and my family, we spend a lot of time hanging out in kitchens. Or if somebody's cooking, I will go stand or sit in the kitchen. And so that that got me thinking about the role of kitchens, where they were placed, what people do with them. And so that, which was a small part of the food waste book, then ended up becoming one of the issues in the house waste book. So from kitchens, I started to look at all the different houses, I'm sorry, all the different rooms in houses and how they were used. And then of course, to talk about that, you'd have to talk about how the houses were built and who built them and where and why. And then I sort of expanded that focus onward to say how houses fit into cities. So that's my background. Amazing. Uh, and before we delve further into the book, uh, I would like the listeners to have a, a basic understanding about the setting of the book, which is the Dhofar region. Uh, so if you can give us a sketch uh, of Dhofar situated between the Indian Ocean and Arabia and how Dhofar basically, let's say, captured your imagination and made you stay for 18 years. <laughs> well, um when this goes back to ancient family history, when my parents were first married, they lived in Puerto Rico for two years in old San Juan. And during that time, they bought land with friends on an island in the Caribbean land, not like a house, nothing fancy. And we went every year for two or three weeks um, over Christmas time until I was about 30. So that experience of being in this tropical area, very different from my day-to-day -day life, 
really stayed with my imagination. And when I visited Oman from living in the Emirates and saw Salala, I just fell in love. It is beautiful here. It's one of the only places on the Arabian Peninsula that has the Harif, the monsoon season, which is June, July, and August, where we don't get a lot of rain per se, but it's drizzly and cool. And then of course we have thousands of tourists, but we have plantations of palm trees and banana trees, and it's very green. Um, and there's the people herd cows here, which is the only place on the Arabian Peninsula where there's enough fodder for that. And it's it's not a big city. It's a city, but it's not bustling. You don't feel like you're in the middle of Abu Dhabi or Doha. Um, and people are very friendly. And it's it's just a very easy place to live. I mean, I'm female. I'm American. I'm Christian. I've lived here 18 years and I've never had a problem. So the the situation of, of Dofar in terms of the physical, the southern border of the region is the Indian Ocean. So the main city is Salala, and from that city going a little ways to the east and off to the west is a 40-kilometer white beach, um, white sand beach. And behind the beach area, there's a flat plain and then um, where the main part of the city is located. And then surrounding the city on three sides, you have the mountains, Jebel Al-Qara, Jebel Al-Qamar, and Jebel Samhan. And then the mountains extend, um, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but for several miles. And then on the northern side, where the monsoon doesn't reach, it gets very dry and there's less habitation, less vegetation, fewer animals. And then eventually the mountains drop down to what's called the Nejd, which is the dry, stony gravel plain. And then eventually have the true desert, the Ribakhali. Along the coast to the east and the west, there's a few places that also have this sort of plain. And that's where the cities and towns are located. Um, there's also cities and towns in the, in the mountains and then on the far side of the mountains. So from... I am just, <laughs> I'm leafing through my book to get you the exact number, but um, there, the Dofar, here we go, it's 99 square kilometers with a population of, of the total population of Vermont, about 4 million. And let me see, let, I'll just give you the numbers. It's um, 17 degrees, zero, zero, five, four north and 54 degrees, zero, five, three, two east in terms of the specific location. But the the border towards the west is Yemen. And then the border going up to the west and the north is Saudi. And then to the east is the re the other parts of Oman. Thank you for that. Uh, yes, indeed, it's, it's a, a beautiful, exceptional region within Arabia which uh, the monsoon system really transforms for a couple of months every year. And that extends also to the highlands of Yemen and southern Saudi as well, where you have the highlands becoming lush and green, uh, which is a stark contrast to the dominant uh, perception of Arabia as a desolate desert. Um, and uh, I wouldn't blame you for staying there. I remember myself going to Salada as a teenager, driving from the Emirates, and the, the contrast between the hot desert and suddenly being engulfed in clouds and mist was a magical experience that I could never forget. Uh, and I would love to go back there again. Um, now we would uh, delve in the book, Houseways. Uh, you and usually open the book with an anecdote uh, of frustration. Uh, the frustration I actually experienced today, having to change my book. Um, and you say I once started crying because a light bulb blew out in the living room of my house in southern Andhra region of Oman. Please tell us about that uh, anecdote and how that led you to think about houseways. Um, well, living alone in a house can be really frustrating because it can sometimes be hard to get help to come in and fix things. And I'm a book person. I have very little life skills in terms of electricity and, and figuring out how to paint something or repair something. So what happened is the light bulb blew and I sat on my couch and cried 
And then I thought, this is kind of ridiculous that you're sobbing because of a light bulb. But as I explained in the book, I knew that like a lot of house repairs, this could be five minutes, like just get up, go to your section, you know, my little box of light bulbs and put it in a new light bulb. Or I could put in the new light bulb and that would blow. And then I would have to figure out if it was the socket, if it was the um, electrical cord, and then sort of all of these other things, which, which could cascade. <laughs> like um, another example I talk about is how for some reason, the electricity in one third of the apartment stopped working. So I had to run around and get extension cords to, to make sure that this plug was working and so that I could get my fridge to continue to work. And this AC was working. And then the person who came to repair that started an electrical fire, which blew all of the electricity for the in, for the four apartments in the complex. Um, so it's one of those things that you just you just don't know when something starts to go wrong. Um, and it taught me a lot about the patience Stofaris have because people never complain about stuff like this. You know, you you say, how are you? Oh, fine, everything's great, everything's wonderful. Of course, we didn't have electricity for 24 hours, but not a problem. And I just think, mashallah, you have you have such strength for these for these sort of daily things, which um, sometimes drive me bananas. Like the fact that the windows don't necessarily fit with the houses because the houses are all cement block and the windows are set in metal frames. So even though there's caulking, there's usually space between the window frame and, and the house wall. Um, so that when it rains or when you've got a heavy sandstorm coming in, you end up with sand or water all over your floors. So um, it's really nice to live in Dofar, but there are some some housing issues. Right. And uh, thinking about houseways, um, you connect the house to the ways and you mentioned why you like attaching ways uh, to different <laughs> Um, so I would like to know about that more. What does Waze do to you in this book and how does it help us to understand, you know, how different house things and different house styles and layouts really interact with everyday life in meaningful ways? Well, part of my use of Waze comes from my differentiated background. So you know, teaching literature, studying travel writing, being interested in history, reading political science, reading architecture books, reading cultural studies books. There's there's just not much written about daily life on the Arabian Peninsula. So most of the works about structures are either about antiquity, so you have archaeologists, or you have writing about very new, very big, very expensive projects done by, as the term is, architects. And I was interested in, in how people live day to day. I mean, what's actually happening in people's houses and why is it happening? And so I didn't want to just discuss the architecture of the house and say, well, here's the rooms and here's the colors. I wanted to talk about the house and why people went into what room, what people wear in the house, how people use the rooms, who is in charge of the rooms, how do people refurnish the rooms. And so I wanted a term that would encompass the physical reality of where do you put the sofa and the cultural issues such as who sits on the sofa, who buys the sofa, what color is that sofa? So that's why I use houseways. And it's the same thing with foodways, because I think using that construction can get to the idea that I'm talking about the physical aspect, as well as the cultural and societal understandings of, of what's happening in a house. Right. And, and that's really useful. Um, reading the book, uh, we've mentioned the anecdote, but this is really goes further deeper in the book. The book also walks along with you while you're living your daily life in Oman. And I find that really beautiful that your positionality and presence is quite felt in the book. So can you describe to us 
what was it like to research this book and write it? Well, this, as I say, goes back to my interest in travel writing, because in travel writing, you have what I call a kind of triangulation in that you have the place described and then you have the author, because in travel writing, the author is always sharing the limelight with the place because you're interested in what this author thinks about that place. And then from those two those two points of view, here's the place, here's the author, you can start to come up with your own opinions about the place saying, oh, I really like this author. He hates that place for this reason, but I don't, I don't mind that reason. So I think I would like that place. So it's very different reading travel writing than reading a guidebook, which is just, here's the information. So from that background, when I do my work, I'm always putting myself in the middle of it to say, this is what it feels like. So one of the things I talk about is just my absolute horror if I drop an ice cube because I have white tile floors in my kitchen and I have slipped and fallen and hurt myself badly twice from slipping on water that I didn't know was there. And you know, going to my mom's house in Maine with wooden floors. And I mean, you could dump the entire ice cube tray on the floor and it wouldn't matter. But water on tile floors is dangerous. So I want to include the the specific details so that people can imagine what these houses are like. But I also want to include what it's like to live in them. Like the fact that if the grackle, which is living in my air conditioner cover, the AC box, which is outside outside of the house and has a cover on it, uh, has babies, then I'm going to get woken up in the morning at first light from grackle babies for several weeks in a row. So I, I want to bring those details of my life in so that people can imagine how it feels like. You know, I have an example in the book when the hurricane hit the hurricane was coming in from the West. And so I thought, oh, it's going to hit Western windows. And so I moved all of the furniture out of the living room, but the rain came in through the Eastern windows. <laughs> and so I ended up at three o'clock in the morning, desperately trying to get furniture out of the Eastern rooms and ended up losing a rug because it just got sodden and I couldn't get it dry. And uh, Maria, so a valuable part of your book, uh, you know, when one, when you read it, is the presence of the voice of your interlocutors. So uh, the question that I had was, to what extent does your field shape your methodology? And uh, could you tell us more about the research guys that you refer to <laughs> uh, and your long association with them uh, that sort of comes across in all three books that you've written? So could you please tell us more? Well, I've been very blessed. I'm very grateful that when I first arrived, I was able to meet various groups of Dofaris, both male and female, who have stayed close friends with me. And as I explain in the books, it's not, it, it's, it's, it's something very strange and something that needs to be explained as to why an Dofari man would be friends with a Western woman. And so I just use the term research guys that covers a whole range of friendships and and knowledge of people and informants and men who I know, um, they, you know, can refer to sort of place me as being doctora, you know, she's a doctora and she's studying culture. And this is why we're talking to her. But I, I met one group of men because of another person who was already here had met them and then sort of expanded that circle out in different ways and met a second group of men because I took classes in something not associated with my university. And the when I started, as I said, I was, you know, I was a literature professor. I was mainly interested in that. And when I shifted, what happened was I would be reading something in travel writing, or I'd be reading something in political science or cultural studies or anthropology. And I would take it to them and I would say, you know, I read this and, and what do you think? Or does this happen here? And that started this pattern of me asking questions and them answering. And this was years before I started my actual research, but just we we got into a pattern of me saying, you know, this person said this happens and have you seen this? 
And then when I started to actually say, I'm going to start to write some articles that are focused on ethnography and focused on these, then I had to go back and do these long explanations. What am I doing and why am I doing it? And bringing the research back to them, which I think is really important that you have to, to me, you have to be very clear with the people you're working with, that you are taking knowledge from them, you're going to put it in an article, and and you need to keep going back to them. So um, <laughs> some of the guys, it's, you know, I would literally sit them down and say, I'm going to do a presentation on this topic. And I would walk through everything I was going to say to hear their feedback on it. And with the books, I would, you know, constantly, I'm going to say this, or what do you think about this? So it's it's very interactive. It's very um, sort of going in a circle. Somebody tells me something, I bring it to somebody else without repeating their name. Just say, somebody told me this. Have you seen this? You know, what do you think about this? Um, and they're all very aware of what I'm doing. When the books are published, I give them copies. I give them copies of articles I've written so that they sort of, they understand what I'm doing and why. And I'm very grateful for their patience because I have a lot of questions. Yeah, and in the book, uh, you mentioned several under-researched aspects of the Dofari social life and the Arab private and public spaces, you know, such as, you know, the common culture practice of picnics, outdoor cooking and camping. So can you tell us more about these acts of leisure that you describe as creating a private space uh, in the public or being at home, quote unquote, at home outside of the home. Um, could you tell us more about it? Yeah, I that was a whole topic that came up as I was researching. There were two or three things that I hadn't really thought about before I started the book. And as I started to write, I realized I needed to talk about this. And then of course, running around trying to find did some, has somebody else talked about this and not finding any any information about this at all so porto faris going out at night or on weekends picnics or camping is is very very common and men who live in the mountains men who live in the the towns outside of salala will will sit outside almost every evening with groups of men who they know. And the there's just not that much information about camping as an activity or picnicking as an activity besides very, very wealthy people setting up very, very extensive desert camps. And then often that being centered around killing something for another example is going, um, there's an issue of, of people going to Pakistan and killing animals as part of this camping desert experience, which I have not seen at all here in Dofar. So I wanted to talk about how people, how people conceived of the space. And I think two or three weeks ago, I did a presentation about how all the land is owned by the government, but the government allows these different types of usage of the land, as long as you are not making permanent claims of ownership so that you can go out from any city or town, find a beautiful place to sit and have a picnic without fear or worry. Um, As long as you're using the land in a way that's not permanent, like building a house on it. Um, So as I say in the book, there's one man I've known for over 10 years and in writing the book realized I've only ever spoken to him inside a room once when he and other men came to visit me when I was very sick. Almost every week, except during COVID, I will meet some group, one or another of the groups of the men, and we sit outside. It's just, we're always sitting outside. So I use lots and lots of bug spray. Yeah, and um, you know, while situating and comparing houseways of Dofar, you navigated through vast scholarship on the idea of the Islamic city, you know, Orientalist literature and the other critical studies in it. So in the book, you argue that Salala may not fit those descriptions. So can you tell us more about your engagement with this idea, uh, with the idea of the Islamic city? Well, that's, you know, that's, as I said, it's another aspect that I hadn't 
considered or really focused on before I started working and on this topic and then reading all of these different books and articles where people saying, well, this is an Islamic city or this is an Islamic house. And then looking at what I was seeing here and thinking this doesn't fit. And in some ways it makes sense that it doesn't fit because most of the examples are sort of ancient, huge cities like Cairo um, and, you know, Salala has only really grown and developed as a city since the late 1970s. But what struck me in reading those books is this idea of how much is, is a physical aspect. So, for example, in Saudi Arabia, where you would have two completely different um campuses for colleges for universities so here's the women's college and way over here is the men's college and there's absolutely no integration between them whereas in oman sultan Qaboos university the first one built in muscat there was one campus and then they they had um different walkways and different doors into classrooms and at where i am at um my university there's you know, men and women in the same classroom, but they the people segregate themselves. So it's not so much as a built segregation, but people acting, sitting, looking, walking in certain ways to keep themselves separate or for expats to not keep some, themselves separate so that people have choices and make choices daily about what their behavior is. But it's not that there's this um, built environment that forces a segregation, for example, between men and women or between expats and locals. And one of the issues that comes up in writing, for example, about the Emirates sometimes is the idea of how some types of expat men are not allowed in certain areas. And so there's different types of segregation on the Arabian Peninsula, what I see in Salala is that people choosing that segregation for themselves. So a group of women who go to the beach choose to sit far away in a close circle, for example. And um, one of the examples I gave in the book was from COVID, which I thought was really telling, was um, Oman was great about organizing and giving free vaccines, and they had it set up that there was, you know, here's the room for women to get their vaccines with female nurses, and here's the room for men to get their vaccines with male nurses. And I saw two women taking um, a disabled man out of the space that was supposed to be for men, but they went into it, which was totally accepted because the man was getting his shot and the women needed to be probably sisters needed to be with him, but they could go into this supposedly male only space without any problem because that's where he needed to be. And I, there's a lot of examples I've seen, and I think it's, it's very interesting that there is this openness of, um, you know, if you need to be someplace, you can go in that place as opposed to some parts of the Arabian Peninsula, where there is very strict segregation. That's true. And uh, the book also draws comparisons uh, from, uh, the, you know, the other typified architectural practices of Yemen, Saudi, Qatar, and then, of course, you talk at length about Dofar. So can you give us a rough sketch of the diversity of architectural practices and different cultural ideas of houses in the Arabian Peninsula that you mention in the book? <laughs> that's a really big question <laughs> um uh so so very briefly yemeni houses are often built for um for protection for fortification and so and this is a huge generalization for yemen but i'm thinking more about hadramut which is the the area close to the the border so that you would have houses that, for example, would have no or few windows on the ground floor or the first floor, which might be used, for example, for animals or for storage. And then the living spaces are up above. 
And you can see elements of that in Jofari houses that were built like in the 1970s and 80s. And now um, there's much less emphasis on sort of defensive features for the house. For example, having huge plate glass windows. Um, what has come through some of the writing about Qatari homes, and I think Kuwaiti homes also, is that people use homes to to have um, a, a discussion space where you would have a modulus, not in terms of a physical room, but a group of people who would come together to discuss local events, current authors, um, topics of cultural interest. And the, the, there would be sort of um, like a, in English, we would say salon in terms of like a group of people coming together to talk at the same time every week, either male centered or female centered. And that I haven't seen in Dofar. There's certainly groups of men who come together and talk, but it's outside of the house. Um, and in Saudi, for example, that just the emphasis of a house is just for family. You know, house is the protected space. A lot of writing about that. Whereas in Dofar, um, the modulus has a door to the outside and people can come, especially in the group of tribes that I do the most work with. Anybody can go to anybody else's house. And I haven't seen writing about that in other countries on the Arabian Peninsula. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying that that, that sort of information about daily life is not really available about some areas. Um, and so fishermen who I know, for example, talk about if you're, you know, if your engine fails, if you get blown off course, if it's late, you can get to any coastal town and go to pretty much any house and just say, hi, this is who I am and just sleep in the modulus. And, and that's not something I've heard of being common in other areas. Mm -hmm. And also if you can say a bit about the environment. So we think about the built environment and how uh, historically it seeks to adapt to the constraints uh, of the environment. And in Bufar, you have the mountains and you have the valleys. And they challenge the inhabitants in different ways. So how people have adapted to their environment and how the post-oil economy have uh, changed that? Well, before the late 1970s, you had people living in a variety of ways. And like in the 1950s, for example, you had people living in caves for part of the year and practicing transhumance. So transhumance is different than nomad. Nomad are people who continue to travel and may come back to the same areas. But transhumance is sort of like having three houses or three living areas and you move between them and maybe going to another new one if there's a rainfall in a particular area. So depending on the weather, and the rainfall, people would move from, for example, um, an area where they would have one of the traditional mountain houses, which was a stone circle about chest high or a little lower um, in courses, and then wood covering that, and then sometimes a tarp over that with a hole in the ceiling. So those were the traditional mountain houses, and people would stay in them in a particular area for a certain amount of time and then move. So the weather patterns are, as we said, the Harif till the beginning of September. And you'd have to move the camels out of the mountains because camels have flat feet. And so at times when there's a lot of moisture, a lot of humidity and dew, camels can't get traction. So you need to get them out of the monsoon area or in a flat area, in a flat place. So people would herd the camels down from the mountains onto the Salala Plain or take them on the far side of the mountains. Um, for cows, you would need to, to change their days and keep them inside during the day because of there's so many flies and let them out at night. Um so you had all of these different patterns going on. So pattern of 
day to night, pattern of where you lived, pattern of moving, because if there's a rainfall, for example, in December, which is out of season, but sometimes happens, people would move with the animals to that area. So you could have people living in a cave part of the year, people living in a roundhouse part of the year, people living just in a simple sort of tent, like under a tree or side of a wadi that's shaded um, in the mountains. So you had all of these different housing choices for people who were living with herd animals. And along the coast, people were more settled and lived in houses that were, for example, made of um, coral or rock with limestone. So those houses were built taking into consideration the, the coastal houses, the coastal wind. So you'd want south facing to get the wind off of the ocean and you'd want a blank wall at the back because the north wind from the mountains usually carries sand with it. So they had all of these, you know, local knowledge, vernacular architecture built up over hundreds of years. But with a cement block house, air conditioning, you can situate your house pretty much any way you want it um, because you don't you don't have to take into consideration the you know where the wind is coming from or where the sun is coming from because you just put blinds on your on your windows. Um, although I think that is still a consideration for people in the mountains because, with fewer neighbors or your neighbors are only family, there's less need to sort of close your house off from other people. And so people build houses in the mountains for the view because often what happens in the mountains is that people have a kind of, it's called a deca, but a kind of porch area at the front of their house for people to sit and you can situate your house for the best view but not in the cities. Right. And ob observing the, the housing market and the changes that are taking place, I see a lot of uh, interest in the concept of open space in some urban areas in Oman and the Gulf. And on the other hand, the persistence also of uh, this uh, segregated space for uh, uh, women guests and men guests and the kitchen is outside. Uh, the fold of the house and the maid's room. You have that, you know, classic layout. And then you have the open concept of an American house with an island, you know, kitchen island and and and, and that sort of layout. Um, do you find Bafar still, uh, there's a, a, let's say, a, a conservative outlook towards that or things are changing? I'm not sure how to answer that. I, I don't think I would classify one type of house as conservative or non-conservative. Um, I have on one of, on my website, I have um, a series of house plans that I've made of houses built at different times to show how, what the, the center of the house you used to be the sala. So the sala would be sometimes like the main central hallway or a round uh, square room in the middle of the house with the with the bedrooms and the kitchen off of it, which I call spoken wheel. Um, and now there's more a sense of like the sala is at the front of the house. It's only for guests and visitors and guests don't go beyond the sala. So you have a lot less you have, you have fewer chances to see the rest of the house now than you did, say, 20 years ago, um, where if you go to an older house, you're usually sort of much more in the middle and you can see many more doorways to see who's coming in and who's coming out. Now, if you go to somebody's house, you're in the sala, so you can not see the front door, but you can see the main part of the main corridor. But people, for example, can come down the stairs and go out the kitchen door. And so you don't know who's in the house or who's coming or going. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily, conservative is, has all, has, in English, as you know, it's got a lot of negative <laughs> connotations. And I wouldn't say people are being more conservative or less, it really depends on the family. And families make choices about um, who comes into the house, 
who is seen, when they are seen, et cetera, et cetera. So the the group of people, the group of tribes I work with um, have have a, a lot of leeway in terms of, for example, a woman going into the modulus to serve tea if there's no men in the house or going to sit in the modulus if it's her brother visiting or something like that. But I I don't think I could go far as to say more or less conservative. Right. I, I guess uh, there are certain stereotypes now being attached to different layouts uh, <laughs> and, uh, and associations with that. And uh, I, I recall my, our first house, uh, I'm from the Emirates from Sharjah. We used to have uh, an, an open yard at the center of the house with, a, with an almond tree. And all of the rooms are facing that tree and the, and the yard. Yeah. So everybody sees everybody once they step out of the bedrooms. Um, mm-hmm. And moving to the uh, the new house, uh, it's a completely different layout. There is no tree in the middle and the rooms are not facing each other anymore. And uh, it's a different navigation of space and also uh, interaction with outsiders. Um, so it's really fascinating to study, I guess, houseways. And we should do more research on this. Um, I I usually don't, you know, have many books on the far. The last one we had on the New Books Network was uh, For Gods or Empire about Sayyid Fadl bin Alawi uh, by Professor Wilson Ch- uh, Ch- uh, Chaco Jacob. And uh, I would love to see more scholarship on the far. Uh, as somebody who spent almost two decades in the far, uh, where do you think uh, potential and promising uh, research agenda uh, could take us and 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 taking the far as a, as a region to explore methodologies and concepts and ideas about the wider Indian Ocean and Arabia well I I think one very interesting area of study might be the tourism just because there's so many tourists for two months of the year and then they all disappear um and and I, I wrote in one article a while ago about how there's Arabian tourists who come in the Harif, and so thousands of Emiratis and Saudis and Qataris and Kuwaitis. But then in the winter months, it's the European tourists. And, and that idea of having to set up a tourist industry for two very, very different types of tourists who want very different types of experiences because... Um, Gulf Arab tourists want to get up fair, not early in the morning, but, you know, want to be up and out at 10 o'clock and they want to have picnics um, and they want to, to sit in this gorgeous weather. And then the 18th festival and things like that. Whereas, you know, the Western tourists who not necessarily all from Europe, um, you know, want very different kinds of experiences. They want a camel ride. And for example, um, so I think tourism studies has a lot of opportunity to talk about what's going on in Dofar. Um, I think it's very interesting in terms of what I was saying about the segregation, about how the the area is very mixed and you know, with all of this open land, how lots of different people can use the land in different ways. And that's, to me, it's really wonderful that you can have this huge beach and you can have very conservatively dressed women, um, local women sitting together. And then, you know, just down the beach a little ways, you can have a bunch of boys playing football. And then you could have an expat family having a gathering with 30 people. And then you can have like, you can have all of these different people interacting fairly close together in peace and harmony, which I think is, is really nice. And I think that should be looked at a little bit more. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in the daily life. I think other people are more interested in um, political issues, which, which is not my which is not my area of expertise, um, but I I do think it's in some ways I think it's too bad that so much of what's written about the Arabian Peninsula is just so negative um, and and focusing on negative elements and I don't think we need to be Pollyanna but Oman is 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 put forward a policy of peace for decades and. I think there should be more 
interest in, in how that works and why that works and why people do it and how that works on a daily level. Um, in terms of, of, of people really emphasizing getting along with other people on every level of the scale from international relations to how people talk to each other in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, it's fascinating that you mentioned uh, the, the issue of tourism. And then in the book, you talk about renting houses and apartments. And so it touches on that uh, a bit. And uh, if the listeners are interested, they can look up social media accounts during, uh, I would say, by towards late June until September, mid-September. <laughs> and suddenly, the far becomes uh, a spectacle for the entire region. Anything that happens on Lufar, the entire GCC knows about it because everybody's sharing everything happening in Lufar. Um, and it's definitely worthy of, uh, of, of, of further studies. Um, you mentioned tourism. Is that your next project would be Tourways maybe? <laughs> or you're working on something <laughs> you'd like to work on that? Um, I am actually starting to think about something a little more meta about how people write about the Arabian Peninsula and how people do research on the Arabian Peninsula using several books that are already written on different topics and also thinking about um, my own research and how and researchers who have come to Dofar who I have talked to and sort of not just what they're planning to do, but how they're planning, how you do research here, how it works and how it doesn't work. Um, and and maybe sort of expanding that a little to people coming to the Arabian Peninsula to work or to teach. So it's all sort of um, nebulous at this point, but I, um, I have the summer and I've ordered a bunch of books. <laughs> and so I'm gonna, um, I'll be here for a while and then I'm going to go sit in my mom's house and read for a couple of weeks and, and sort of see what comes out of that. That sounds like a great plan. And we look forward uh, to your next uh, project and book and hopefully having you again on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, so you for taking the time to talk about your book today. And uh, thank you for the listeners uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored Houseways in Southern Oman, published by Routledge in uh, 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, and this was co-hosted. Thank you so much. Uh, co-hosted with Aisha and uh, Mariel. I look forward to seeing you in Salala. <laughs> You're <you>. welcome. <laughs> And I hope to thank you all. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Please stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.